Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Ascends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray together. Our God, we thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we ask, Lord, that indeed your word would strengthen and encourage us this day, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would cause it to soften hard hearts and open blind eyes. And we pray, Father, that you would give grace to the hearers as well as the speaker, that we might hear clearly what it is that you have to tell us. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that you will all have a wonderful Christmas day today. Uh, I, I truly do. Um, I think you all are well uh, aware of that, but uh, I think that sometimes we forget that Christmas Day, maybe we don't forget, maybe it's so obvious that we can't forget it. Christmas Day is a day of joy, isn't it? I mean, this day is a day that we celebrate, and we celebrate it with music, with presents and gifts and carols and families and food and get-togethers and time with our loved ones. I'm sure you're all well aware of what the day, your particular day, will be filled with. Hopefully you do. If not, ask your wife. Um, <laughs> the point is, <laughs> this is a day of joy. It's something that we all uh, sense, don't we? We all recognize that this is a day that we are called to celebrate. And even as we uh, experience it in our lives or as we go back to the narratives of the Gospels and read about the birth of Christ found there, we know that the entrance of this child, Jesus Christ, into the world is a day of joy. It is a joyful time. Because indeed, when God comes, there is true and living joy. That is the end result for all who know their Savior, who all who know him as Lord and Savior, it will be a day of joy when Christ comes again in the flesh, just as his birth was, in fact, a day for his people to rejoice at his coming. But in order for us to get to that day of joy, in order for that joy to make any sense or be significant to any of us, we have to first go through the cross. 
Uh, one writer I was reading this week said the cross is in fact the very heart of Christmas. And the reality of the cross being the heart of Christmas is what takes us to the text of Philippians this morning instead of the gospel narratives that reveal the history of Christ's birth and descent from high into the world. I mean, why is it that Christ's coming is good news? Why would God descend to us to begin with? What is it about his coming that causes us to rejoice? And so this morning, we are going to be looking at a text that shows us the very heart and root of Christmas, the very heart of his coming and being born in human flesh. And in this text, we see the very heart of Christmas itself when we see Christ descending from above and what that means for us as children of God. First point this morning I'd like us to see in this text is the humility of Christ's descent, the humility of Christ's descent. Our story this morning, as we look at our text uh, of Christ's coming, it doesn't begin in the lowly cattle stall or the feeding trough that Christ was born at, or even in the womb of the Virgin Mary, where he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. It begins long before that. Before any of these events happened in human history or they took place, even before creation itself, it begins in eternity past. You see, our text this morning begins in verse 6 with Christ, who was in the form of God, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and who emptied himself. What does that mean? What does it mean that Christ was in the form of God? What does it mean that he emptied himself? Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled over these verses throughout the ages of the church. Men have pondered and wondered and and, and, uh, uh, contemplated and debated and argued over these words. Not because we can't understand them, because they're really difficult to comprehend, but because of the sheer wonder of what it means when you break it down and understand the concept of what is going on here. Because at the heart of this text... We see Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, this one who was before time began as an active member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have always been and always will be, who are the three eternal persons in one. And here in our text, we have Christ, who is God, emptying himself. Again, but what does that mean? What does that mean that God would empty himself? Well, to understand what it means for something to, when it's empty, to understand the concept of something being empty, you need to understand what it looks like when it's full. Now, just think about what it means for Christ to be God, that in his very nature, he is God. For Christ, this one who is a member of the Trinity, as God himself, he is the invisible God. His very being, his whole nature, that is who he is, God clothed in garments of majesty and splendor. And he was active in the creation of the world. He is Lord over all the earth and all that is in it and all that it dwells upon this earth. From the highest mountains to the lowest crevice of the ocean floor, he reigns supreme as an emperor over the whole world. And Christ Jesus was over all things. That was what was given to him, even as a member of the Godhead, as a creator, as participating in the creation. 
And we think men, I mean, we often think of leaders and particular men as being great, a president or a king or someone who's in charge of 50 people, because they have something that they reign over. You think of a man like Alexander the Great, whose empire was beyond what anyone could imagine for a man his age when he took it over. It was vast, it was wide, it was indeed great, and he was a great and powerful man. But Christ, as the member of the Godhead, was over all things. He was over all mankind. He was over the entirety of the world. And he deserved all honor and praise simply because he is the Lord as the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is over all things. And all men ought to bow before this God for no other reason than that he is the God who created them. We owe him our worship and our allegiance, this three in one who with a very few words spoken from his mouth, everything we know or ever seen with our eyes has come into existence. I mean, this is the one who the New Testament tells us the wind and the waves obey the Lord God over all things as a great ruler of the world that he created. And this is the very one who our text tells us emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant very strong contrast here going on. You know, here is Christ, very God himself, the second person of the Trinity, one who deserves all praise and glory and honor. And just think of the honor that is due to him. I mean, we give honor to a king. If a king of any country to walk, to walk into this room right now, we would bow before this man. We would, uh, uh, um, we would honor this one who rules, even if we aren't his particular subjects. We give honor to whom it is due. But what kind of honor and glory is due to the one who is over everything, who makes rulers of the earth? His footstool, who without even a nod of his head or a word could undo all that has been made. This is God we're talking about here. The only one truly worthy of receiving honor and praise. And yet he takes the form of a servant, not the form of an earthly king. You know, as you would expect this one, as he, if he were to come down, you expect him to take a position of power and to rule. But no, he takes the form of a servant. And on one hand, in this description, you have one who is in the form of God. On the one hand, he is the one who is in stunning radiance, too bright and too glorious for us to behold or comprehend in its fullest. And on the other, a servant. I mean, no analogy quite covers the difference and the contrast that's going on here. It's, it's, it, you know, it, think of undercover boss. You know, there's this one who is indeed over all, and he comes down into the lowest position, but it's even more than that. This is not a man who comes from a high rank to a low position. This is very God, a very God, coming down descending and emptying himself of all his rights as God. It's not that he's given up his deity or anything like, but just try to imagine and comprehend God, this one who is infinite, who is great over all things, greater than anything that we have ever seen with our eyes, greater than the expanse of the universe itself, and the wonders of the world. And yet, this one takes on human flesh to himself. How can this be? 
We think for God to take on human flesh would be like taking all the electricity from a power company that gives electricity to millions of homes and channeling through a single light bulb. Surely it's too fragile to contain this infiniteness, this wonder, this God. And yet that's what it is like for the creator of the heavens to become part of his creation, the absolute infinite being. He comes down from the heights into time and into space, down into humanity, and according to C.S. Lewis, not just into humanity, but into the very roots and seedbed of the nature he created. Christ voluntarily gave up all the glory that was due him, and he took on human flesh, and he took on a human nature to himself. And that's all well and good, but we still often fail to see how great his descent from the heights was. And we may be able to comprehend on one level, maybe you are, I can't quite ever wrap my mind around it, how God became man. But think of the extent of his humility. He didn't just come down you know, into the form of a full-grown man, one who has at least some strength, relatively speaking, but he came as a child. Now, infinite power was his, and yet he lowered himself down to take on the flesh of a newborn infant, a helpless being one who cannot hold his own head up, one who cannot run from danger or walk or even crawl if it were to present itself, one who cannot sit up, one who must be fed and cared for by others and clothed and washed, or he will die. Well, the magnitude of this contrast of an infinite God with limited or limitless power and might, and yet he came down as one who was helpless, one who would suffer scorn because he came from the womb of an unwed mother. Surely many scoffed at the idea of Mary being impregnated by the Holy Spirit and laughed at behind her back, mocking her, and Jesus himself bore that same scorn and derision. He was born in little more than a cave, a place for keeping the animals, no hospital, no doctors around, no nurses to check on him, no flowers waiting in his room, no welcoming home, Uh, a party waiting for him. No people of any kind were near the Savior of the world. Neither Joseph or only Joseph and Mary and some shepherds who came to gaze upon this wonder. Very poor people on the fringe and outside skirts of society and came to greet him at his birth. He was born into a poor family, one who couldn't even afford to offer anything other than two doves at the temple for the offering of the firstborn son. He was never well-known or well-off. Throughout his life, he owned nothing but the clothes on his back. For foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Christ gave up every right and every comfort that rightfully belonged to him as God. He didn't even allow himself the comfort of a bed, but often slept out in the open field. He walked everywhere, his whole life long, through his life and his ministry. This is the one who is the greater than all the kings of the earth combined throughout all the ages, and yet no horse carried him. Not even a donkey, save for one that he borrowed as he entered into Jerusalem for the Passover. He spent time with tax collectors and sinners, the lowest of all mankind and society in the eyes of the world, the outcasts, the poor, the unlovely, He was often tired, 
ministered to people all day long with no thought for himself and his own needs. He even went hungry. This is God we're talking about here. This is the one who made you and gave you all that you have in your life now. He has infinite power beyond our wildest imagination. He can calm waves and water. He makes blind men see. He causes lame men to leap, yet he never once used that power to his own advantage. He could have made bread from rocks when he was starving after not eating for 40 days and night, and yet he did not because he came not to serve, but to be, or not to be served, but to serve. And Paul says in verse 5 to us, have this mind in you, people of God. Serve one another in this way. Lay your life down for one another in this way. It doesn't matter what title you have in the church, be it pastor, elder, deacon, mother, daughter, son, wife, husband. Paul calls us to have this mind of Christ, to be willing to lay ourselves down, our rights for the rest of the body. Just how great do we think we are? Now, we are so important with our titles and our prestige that others ought to always serve and care for us. Dr. Johnson writes this. Long, think long and hard about the magnificence of Christ and what he laid down for you because it will put your sense of your own importance into proper perspective. In all Christ's greatness as God, he didn't ever use his power or position for taking, but for giving. He came washing the feet of his disciples, not asking them to bow before him, though he is the king of the world. That's what it means for Christ to empty himself and to take the form of a servant. He gave up every right he had to be served as the infinite God over all things. He had every right to demand that others serve him, yet he gave it all up, taking the form of the servant. And Paul says that he became obedient. He did all of this. He descended so low that he was obedient, even to the point of death. His body was beaten and broken and disfigured and bloodied, and ultimately he would taste death. He was separated from the Father whom, or when he suffered for our sins. How excruciating that particular knife was for his soul. This one whom has blessed communion with the Father for all eternity, separated from him for the sake of our sins. He was forsaken because he carried our sins in his body and underwent death, even death on a cross. And Paul highlights this saying, this is the lowest of lows. This is a death That for a Roman was a death of a criminal. It was an obscene way to die, never mentioned in proper circles. That's why he was crucified outside of the city, outside of Jerusalem, outside and away from anything decent. He died among thieves. And for the Jew, he died a cursed death. For cursed is any man who is hanged on a tree. And Christ died an obscene And cursed death by hanging upon that cross. And yet it does not end. He was buried in the ground. His body lay there lifeless. No heartbeat beat with no heartbeat was within him. No breath came from his lips. That is how low Christ went 
That is how far this God, the very God of God, descended. That is how much he emptied himself of all the rights of God. But praise God, the story does not end there, but the story goes on to tell us the glory of Christ's ascent. The glory of Christ's ascent. Christ did not stay in the grave. Death could not hold him. The powers of hell could not keep him. And we see his descent reversed as the Father draws him back up from the grave into the very highest of heights, into the heavens themselves, as he is resurrected into newness of life and ascends into heaven that he might be highly exalted at the right hand of the Father. And it tells us, indeed, it is so that every knee on, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, all that, would, that has been created will bow down before him and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord, all done to the glory of the Father. Christ is raised and he is highly exalted above all others. He now reigns supreme over all as the glorified God-man. But the question is, what has changed from the beginning? What's the difference now for Christ? You know, Christ was with the Father and with the Holy Spirit back in eternity past, back before anything happened in history. And he was to be glorified as God, as the great one over all things. He already was to receive all the glory from mankind as the creator of the universe. But what's the difference between now and then? Why did Christ have to descend in order to be highly exalted now? I mean... Didn't we already owe him all of our praise as the creator of the world? Well, C.S. Lewis explains it this way about Christ's descent from the heaven and his ascent, and I can't find a better way to say it. He said he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world with him. One may think of a diver glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanishing, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till he suddenly breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing he went to recover. You see, people of God... Christ underwent this whole process of descending to earth only to ascend to heaven again in order that God would be praised and magnified as a redeemer. God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit knew how broken this world would be because of Adam's sin and determined in the Council of Peace back then that they were going to redeem this sin-cursed, broken world. And the Father said, I will call a people unto myself. And the Son said, I will purchase them for my own, with my own blood. And the Holy Spirit said, I will draw them into communion with God and seal them for the day of redemption. People of God, Christ brought us, ruined men, back from the depths of hell itself. He recovered us, certainly people who had, did not deserve his love. And yet he became a servant to us. And in his descent for our sake, in his drawing us out of the mire of our sin, we see the love of God displayed in all its fullness and in all of his glory. That is what makes a day like today so full of joy, so worth rejoicing and celebrating about. 
Because in it we see Christ Jesus, the God-man, God himself, lowering himself as a servant in the fullness of humility, counting himself, counting us greater than himself. Because you, you, dear Christian, were precious to him. May we praise our God for the love and mercy found in him and in the redemption that is ours through Christ Jesus. May we continue to glorify this one who is over all things, who demands all of us. Indeed, may we praise our God by having the same mind that Christ had as he sought and bought and pitied us when we were enemies, as he laid down his life for his sheep. People of God, we have a reason to rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice again, I say rejoice, for the God-man came down to earth to save sinners, even the chief of sinners. He came down to set the prisoners free, to make the blind see, to the, the lame walk. He came down to raise in his hands a ruined and broken world. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God in heaven. Father, we pray that your love for us would indeed touch us and that we would know the love of God found in us and for us in the blood of Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that you would turn our eyes to heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and that we might magnify and glorify and praise his holy name for coming down and descending and becoming man, taking our, our sinful flesh upon himself in order to redeem us from the curse of sin and death and the power of hell itself. Father, we praise you, and we ask indeed that you would cause within us, cause us to be conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. Cause us to have the same mind of Christ that was willing to serve others and lay our lives down, not because we are a great people, but because we're seeking to be conformed into his image and made more like our Father, or our, our, made more like the Son. And we praise you for this day, and all this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.